0: This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. It is Restaurant Week in Seattle, and it's an event organized by Seattle Good Business. Which I didn't know existed. So we've called Mariah De Leo, who works with Seattle Good Business. Tell me about your group.
1: Yeah, so uh, Seattle Good Business Network is a community-based economic development nonprofit, and we work in a bunch of different spaces. We organize the program Seattle Made, um, Seattle Restored, which are a couple of ones that people may have heard of, and then of course we also um, we run a fairly large food. Uh, program the good food economy program uh, which now houses seattle restaurant week we've been running seattle restaurant week since 2017 when we were gifted it from the group of uh, restaurateurs who um, kind of founded it and then passed it along to us and so um, we've been running it ever since
0: and so you're trying to help seattle recover from the uh, post-pandemic funk i guess
1: yeah i mean (laughs) i think our our kind of goal is very long term um you know, economic change and making uh, Seattle a place that's good for people and place um, for everyone living within it. That's the long term goal. And of course, the pandemic made a, you know, a huge impact on that. And so, yeah, we're definitely focused in the near term on uh, local recovery and making sure that's as inclusive as possible. Restaurants, how are they doing I think while it may look as though, you know, everyone's back up and running and, you know, doors are open and people are out, I think they're still facing a lot of challenges. Staffing challenges are certainly probably at the top of that tier, but just in general, you know, inflation, um, especially in food and commercial rents, they're they're facing a lot of probably, I'd say financial challenges, um, both that were kind of existing before, but made a little bit worse now. And so I think they're, um, they're working really hard. <laughs> they're working yeah. really hard to stay open, stay successful, keep doing the really creative and innovative things that they love doing. Um, but yeah, they're they're definitely still in need of some support.
2: So how does Restaurant Week help with that? I imagine there might be some deals or specials
1: because it's still expensive for the customers. So what are you offering customers? You know, what we did when the pandemic happened was we kind of reformatted um, Seattle Restaurant Week completely. It used to be three courses for $35 and had been that way for about 10 years. Uh, And so what we did is just really open it up, um, open it up to new and diverse restaurants, um, which also meant opening up price points. So we actually now have price points at $20, $35, $50, and $65. And those can be inclusive of per person. Most of them are per person, but some are even a family style meal or, um, you know, kind of like a a group small plate table um, for the table so it's really up to the diner to like kind of peruse and look through the um the different uh, menus that are available and see and kind of find a um, a menu that matches what they do so we're not Uh, relying as heavily on discounts as we were in the past because we want to make the restaurants whole. But at the same time, we know that diners are looking for something very special. So many restaurants are offering discounts through um, their meals, but they're really just kind of specially curated um, around um, what shows off what they do best. Uh, And so you can find a variety of different um, really great offers um, throughout the over 200 participating restaurants. I'd say give yourself a pat on the
2: back for the website too because often for events what I find is the websites make it too cumbersome to figure out like how do I fit into this equation and I went and I did in fact see on a grid the different price points that we offer a $20 price point, 35 vegetarian, like you can find the restaurant that fits you and another thing that surprised me that I found on that list was that it's called Seattle Restaurant Week but you have places around the region and including where Uh I am in Edmonds, they're participating. And so you don't necessarily have to leave your town to participate. Exactly.
1: We kind of make a joke here that Seattle Restaurant Week is no longer really just Seattle no longer really just restaurants and no longer really just a week, although it's always been two weeks. Um, yeah, we, it, we have opened it up to the greater Seattle area. And so we do have participating wonderful restaurants in Edmonds all the way down to Federal Way. Mm-hmm. Um, Thierry Cambodian Foods is in Federal Way and I think even Puyallup now um, and then east to Issaquah. So um, we definitely are including um, just kind of like the larger metro area. We want to invite um, the whole region to participate in this because we know there's people everywhere. And that makes it, Better for when there's over 200 restaurants. You really just kind of, sometimes you want to go out and sometimes you want to find what's local to you.
0: So the idea, of course, is to get people out of the house and uh, and participating. What are some of the hidden jewels? We're always looking for a, a different kind of dining experience. Do you have any tips?
1: Sure. Yeah, um, we're really excited. You know, this whole kind of change in format has really allowed... A lot of different kinds of people who have never participated um, to come in. Um, Revel in Fremont is probably one of my favorites. I'm going to be going there for my birthday tomorrow. And they offer a three course for $35, which is um, definitely a deal and an exquisite offer.
0: So Google them, look up the site, and uh, it's really easy. You have the price points. You can pick the restaurant, pick the price. And uh, how long do we go on for on
1: Restaurant Week? Until November 4th, so that's a Saturday, and it's srweek.org.
0: Mariah DeLeo from Seattle Good Business. Mariah, thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me. This is Seattle's Morning News. It's now been, what, three weeks since Republicans ousted Kevin McCarthy. And the party is caucusing today in private, hoping to come up with some kind of consensus candidate. There are, we are told, eight Republicans now vying for the job of Speaker in the House of Representatives. Let's go live now to CBS correspondent Wendy Gillette. So, well, are there any names that we would recognize in this group of eight, Wendy?
3: Yeah, I'd say so. The majority whip, Tom Emmer. And just uh, some breaking news right now that we've had another uh, Republican drop out, Gary Palmer from Alabama. So that leaves us with seven on this another day in Washington, another attempt for Republicans to pick a House speaker who can get enough support for approval. And as you mentioned, right now, Republicans are meeting behind closed doors in the nation's capital, voting by secret ballot. The meeting started a little over an hour ago. Now seven candidates to choose from. Dan Muser of Pennsylvania dropped out yesterday, and Gary Palmer, uh, according to The Washington Post, just dropped out about 20 minutes ago. So we've got the front-runner majority whip, Tom Emmer from Minnesota, Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma, Jack Bergman from Michigan, Byron Donalds from Florida, Mike Johnson from Louisiana, Austin Scott from Georgia, and Pete Sessions from Texas. Only two of them voted to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election, Emmer and Scott. The magic number the nominee will need when the House holds a full vote, presumably later today, 217, which means he needs all Republican votes except for a maximum of four defectors. Republicans held a forum last night before this morning's vote. Bergman says there was a great sharing of ideas, dialogue and priorities, but that does not mean this is going to be easy. Several rounds of voting are expected, and each time the candidate with the lowest number of votes will be eliminated until someone can get a majority, Dave.
0: Hmm, okay, so it's sort of a survivor format. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, Tom Emmer, who seems to be the, the uh, strongest candidate in that uh, group of seven, he did vote to certify the election. So does, that, d- does he get Trump's support or not?
3: Well, Trump so far, no. Uh, Trump so far staying out of uh, this round. He's declined to endorse anyone, though some contenders have asked for his support. He does say he needs to stay out of it for now after backing Jordan last week, Jim Jordan from Ohio, of course, who failed in his bid. But the former president did uh, post several items on social media criticizing Emerson, although he's says he's gonna stay out of it, he did. Oh he I did see. Still um So he's still in it,
0: even it. though he's staying out of it.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> well I mean the the problem is I understand it was that this is a for the moderate Republicans, acceptance of the twenty twenty election results is a litmus test. Is does that still
4: hold?
3: Yeah, yeah. And that's why it's important and and such a such a big deal that two of them um did uh certify the election results so um presumably they have a a better chance of getting the the full support democrats are privately saying they'd be most open to emmer um because of his vote to certify the 2020 election and democrats say they find him the least objectionable Mm -hmm. candidate. but they want assurances that he'll be open to government spending as laid out in the debt limit deal as well as funding for israel and ukraine emmer of course he's not going to negotiate with democrats and he wants to get enough votes from republicans so see. we'll see after all these votes are held this morning if if he does come out on top and then uh presumably will go to the full house today so hopefully republicans say they will have a speaker of the house tonight but they've said that before and it hasn't happened and just like you had uh done the countdown in your head yeah it's been three weeks no, yeah. without a speaker,
0: okay, so Emer says he won't negotiate with Democrats, but there doesn't have to be negotiation if I mean, uh, these guys all know each other uh, on some level, right? So aren't the Democrats mm-hmm. basically in a position to install any of these guys if they anybody who they consider to be the least objectionable they've they've got the votes to do it if they wanted to, right?
3: Sure, sure, they do. But at this point, Republicans are saying, we'll, we'll do it ourselves. We, we're going to find someone that we can back, even though, you know, it's only those four defectors that they can that they can have and, and still um, get the full support from Republicans that they need. But they don't at this time, they don't want to deal with Democrats and negotiating mm-hmm. for votes. Oh,
0: I see. So they're not even going to bring it to the floor until they can pass it with just Republican votes. Is that the deal?
3: Yep, that's exactly right. Well, then what, are, what about
0: Matt? What about the Matt Gates group? What about the Gang of Eight? Couldn't they scuttle this whole thing?
3: Yep, they sure could. But there is a lot more reluctance at this point to scuttle votes uh, or scuttle the nominee because this is dragged on for three weeks, and and it's, it's not good for you know the their home territories, and and people are getting very antsy at this point. Of course, the government faces a potential shutdown next month unless legislation can get passed on time. And uh, these are very complex negotiations to get the funding packages passed. And every day that this drags on, they're not working on the legislation to make sure that the government doesn't get shut down. The funding runs out November 17th. So it's not that long. It's only three and a half weeks. And we know usually this takes months.
0: On another matter, I was uh, reading a few headlines indicating that there might be some cracks in Democratic support for Israel now that there are more pictures coming out of Gaza of uh, churches being destroyed and uh, a lot of Palestinians losing family members as uh, what Israel is causing collateral damage. How serious is that?
3: Well, we'll have to see when it actually comes uh, down to a vote. Um, Democrats have been pretty strong about getting that funding. For both Israel and Ukraine, and backing um, President Biden's plan for more than a hundred billion dollars in funding, but it's a little hard to tell at this point because the House is shut down and and there's no uh, real negotiations going on. And until we get the Speaker,
0: right? So even that discussion has been uh, shut down. But I'm just curious when they when they get back and they start uh, talking again. I mean, we, we have a, a battle of. Of news footage going on here, right, with the Palestinians mm-hmm. issuing a lot of it, with the Israeli side issuing uh, a lot of uh, that GoPro camera uh, footage from the original October 7th uh, attack. It, it sounds like the longer this drags on, uh, the more worrisome the consequences of an invasion become
3: certainly possible. Uh, President Biden has uh, said that he wants to have plenty of funding for Gaza as well. But the, the majority of the $10 billion, of course, is going to be um, allocated to Israel if, if his plan goes forward. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's an interesting time, certainly, in Washington.
0: Correspondent you let Wendy, thank you.
1: Door.
3: Your daily dose
2: of kindness now brought to you by Robert W. Baird. For Tammy Feliciano, life has been tough. From losing her only means of transportation to burying her father at the start of the pandemic, it's been tough. She tells NBC affiliate WWBT-TV. It's
5: been taped up, pushed, pushed together. And as it's aged, it just started needing more and more work. And just to put money into it is just not gonna happen. She's talking about her car.
2: And as age settled in, both her parents were reluctant to move to a nursing home. So Tammy moved in instead,
5: becoming their caretaker. We did everything we could, even even though it meant me leaving the workforce and, and sacrificing and trying to survive with two Social Security checks. But in the end, it's just he wouldn't have mentally... Been prepared to be in a nursing home. It's an, it's just something he didn't want. Well, now she does what
2: she can to take care of herself, her mom, and their dog, which oftentimes means getting groceries
5: delivered or even walking to the store. I'm still young enough. I said we'll we'll make this work as long as we can, and uh, until we can get back maybe on our feet financially from vet bills and heating bills and the economy and groceries. And that's just something their neighbor Dottie Chick wouldn't allow. So when I can help her, I mean, she's been walking. That's too far.
2: So, I mean, it's not that much what I do. Whether it's a quick run to the pharmacy or bank, she knows she can count on Dottie now. For 12 years, these uh, life experiences have turned these neighbors into family.
5: I understand it's necessary when she needs it, but I don't do that much. I really don't. It's the small things
2: she's done, and that's more than enough for Tammy.
5: Sometimes just the simplest of acts can give a, a, a family hope that it's not over, that um, it's worth holding on. And fighting through the tough battles. That's neighbors helping neighbors.
0: And now, from the G.N. Ursula Show, which starts at 9, here is G. Scott. Good morning. So, I see that uh, Senator Murray's introduced this uh, bill that would make two-year technical or community colleges, uh, I think it's free for the first year, then you get 80% for the second year and up. What do you think?
6: Love it. I love when you start talking about Access to education. This is what this does. It promotes uh, equal access to education, and I think it will help with uh, the economy going forward, both specifically for that person and their family going forward, and also our economy. Let's just talk about this. When When you are able to do this, automatically you can reduce the student loan debt that we have problem that we have in this country. We know that for your universities or the, the cost of that is rising. That is a problem. Also, it also helps when it comes to an education. I was, t- we were talking about this yesterday and I know, and I want to be able to really be relatable to people that are listening right now. There's a lot of people right now that have the skills for that job mm-hmm. They have the training for that job. They understand that job. They can do that job. The only thing that is holding them back from that job
0: is a diploma.
6: Mm -hmm. Let me be very specific. is a piece of paper that says diploma
0: on it. But there's no moral hazard here because there's a lot of pushback when when, uh, Biden wanted to forgive student loans. That's just another form of free education. This is just another form of free education, except you get the money up front. But you're going to pay for it at some point. So if you
6: don't pay for it now and give people access to free education that way, then later on uh, the show with Dave and Colleen, you're talking about a billion dollars in affordable housing. You're talking about this money going towards the unhoused. Then you're talking about the homelessness crisis that continues to increase. So you have to pick and choose when you want to help with this. Now, speaking of education, do we have a history in this country where education was not accessible Mm -hmm. to everybody? Mm -hmm. So if everybody can agree with that... <laughs> that we can know come come forward and say hey we can do a little bit to help people
0: gain access yeah. to better education and, but that doesn't just in this country we have this history of, of we'll provide it up to the 12th grade then after that you're on your own other countries
2: except we require it in order to, yeah, to have a, a successful career That's what I'm saying. so countries we require it but then make it inaccessible make, for
0: uh, make education universally accessible yeah. to everybody as far as you want to go basically. Yeah,
2: I, I agree and but, I have to say just a shout out to community colleges I went to Belgium community college before it was Bellevue College in order to get into the University of Washington. So I had to take that junior college route in order to get into a four year university we called it like a cost-saving because it's cheaper go to community college than four-year. But what it really was was I wasn't ready for a four-year. And so many people aren't, either financially or education-wise. And so to provide that for a lower cost or for free means more people into the pipeline for a four-year, more people into successful careers and, and gainful employment. Colleen,
6: I never knew that about
2: you. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, awesome. it was a good time. Work for the Jib Sheet newspaper at Bellevue College. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good time. That
6: that that's pretty cool. How about the, econ- the the economic side of things? When people and more families are able to get out here and make money, mm-hmm. right? For their families, well, they're able to come out here into society and go to the grocery stores and restaurants and do more and then the money is flowing. Unless unless I don't know. I need to ask. Maybe there's a lot of people that like that in this country we have a very small few at the top. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of folks at the bottom financially. Who are desperate and will work for a little money. If that is what you like, Mm -hmm. I personally don't like it. I, I like for more people to have and or be able to have the opportunity to have. That's the world that I love. Mm,
0: Jen Hursley starts at 9 on Cairo News Radio. Thank you, G. New York Times reporter David Farenthold uh, began his award-winning career with a yellow legal pad and a pencil following Donald Trump's charitable finances. And now the uh, yellow pad and the pencil—I assume you still have them—have uh, been <laughs> have been used to document what's going on in college sports these days. And I thought your latest piece in the uh, New York Times was a real eye opener. Ever since uh, name, image, and likeness were allowed for uh, uh, sales were allowed for college athletes, the money has flowed. And and you your latest story is about what are called donor collectives that are. Basically, sort of uh, like a, a shadow uh, recruiting organization for players. Explain to us how, the, how these uh, collectives work.
7: Yeah, basically, these are groups of fans, boosters, you know, wealthy folks uh, who support one school or another. And they use the NIL system as basically a backdoor to pay players to play their sport. So they'll hire, you know, the quarterback or the running back or the point guard to a job that pays a huge amount of money, like one case, $750,000 a year, um, for a tiny amount of work. In that case, $750,000 a year for making one social media post per month. Um, so they, they hire these players to jobs with huge pay and, and little bits of work. Um, and say, okay, you can keep this job as long as you stay on the team, as long as you stay at our school. So they've used NIL, what was supposed to be bringing people endorsement contracts and shoe deals and Gatorade ads, basically as a way to pay the players to play and a way to avoid the NCAA rules against that.
0: So so there still are rules against pay to play?
7: Yeah, there's still a rule that you you can't pay players to play. Uh You can pay them whatever you want for anything else, and and you can wink at them and say, "You know, you know why you're getting this." Uh, And so you could. What they've done is create a free agent market uh, with salaries approaching those of the pros, but none of the rules that make pro free agent markets work. No salary cap. No transparency about. you know, what players get. And there's not even really a connection between the collectives and the school that you actually play for. So sometimes, you know, the collectives have so much power over what their own school will get.
0: Well, that's what I'm wondering. So who is actually – I thought it was the coaches that recruited the players. Are these collectives also recruiting players?
7: Yeah, we talked to a guy who – the quarterback at Iowa this year who was used to be at Michigan, and he was looking to transfer because he lost his starting job. And he basically said, look, when I went to all these schools, I wanted to know how much i get paid. And so in his case, when he went to Iowa, yeah, he talked to the football coach and you learned about the locker room and what role you would have in the offense. But then you also talked to the collective. In that case, he said, they just handed them a written offer and said, we're going to pay you this much, $600 an hour for a sort of a, a charity work job um, to be, you know, to stay at our school. So the, the collectives had this huge role in recruiting high school players and also transfers from other, other schools.
0: Now, is this independent from the sponsorship money they get?
7: It is. So there, they, there are still people out there getting, you know, what you think of traditional uh, NIL deals you know, for shoes or for Gatorade or whatever. It's just a, the vast majority of the money in the system, about 80% of all the money going to players through quote-unquote NIL deals is actually from these collectives who are just paying them to play.
0: I didn't realize that. See, I thought this was all about letting the players, uh, you know, like sign a deal with uh, with Nike if they're that marketable. But you're saying that these are just rich donors who want to – who want to add to that because that's not enough?
7: Yeah, basically there are not that many players on on a given team, especially you know on a football team with so big there's not that many players who actually have that much value to Gatorade or Pizza Hut or you know anybody uh-huh. who pay them for you know brain by like think about an offensive lineman or you know the backup tailback or something, but that person has a huge amount of value to the team, and so the basically the collectives are set up to find people like that that don't really have any value as advertisers or endorsers and just use the system to pay them to stay on the team and compensate them for their value to, on the field rather than their value as an endorser.
0: Now, our own Chris Sutherland is a proud football dad. Uh, what do you know about this? Chris? We have a collective at our
8: school. David, what I want to know from you is there are over 150 D1 schools. How many of them would you categorize are doing what you're doing? Uh, what, they, what you are saying they are doing? I, it's got to be a small m- margin. Our collective Works directly with the school is in, and is used and the money goes to every player on in our collective at our D1 school. So I mean, how many people? I mean, ten percent, fifty percent. What? Who's actually doing it on this end uh, that you're talking
7: about? So we looked just at the Power Five, big football conferences, plus the Big East, to this big basketball conference, and we found a collective doing some version of this at every one of those schools. That was 70-something schools. And you're right that it really varies. Some schools, they just pay everybody on the football team the same amount. Some, some schools, the collectives pay a lot more to the star players. It varies in each school, but there was a collective doing this at all those 70-plus programs.
0: So was this the idea, then, behind the NCAA reform, or is this just sort of— no. Bending and, the rules. Everybody
7: we talked to who was involved at, at, in creating this at the NCAA and at the state level, you know, there were state laws that sort of pushed the NCAA to do this. They all said that they never anticipated this. That they imagined it would be, you know, shoe deals and, you know, Gatorade endorsements, yeah, yeah. and didn't see this coming. But it, the, the Boosters, collect—you know the, the folks who started these collectives, these wealthy donors, saw it on day one and started doing it on day one and then started bragging about it to the point that it became an arms race. You know, school, I mean, A collective at the University of Texas said, we're going to pay all our linemen $50,000 each. And then a guy in Miami wanted to do more. And, and then it became this thing where like, it's not just a nice to have, it's a have to have. And out coaches were out there telling fans, hey, like at Ohio State, the football coach told the boosters, like, you need to give the greatest $13 million a year and pay it to my players, or we're not going to win a championship.
0: Yikes. So what what do the boosters get out of this? I mean, college football is fun, <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, it's great for a team to win, but this seems like it's it's way over the top.
7: So that is the problem. You know, this is the NCAA and the IRS are trying to do things to crack down on this. But the real threat to this is the, is what they call donor fatigue, because you know it's fun to do this, and you know, but then especially if you don't don't get a charitable donation, a tax deduction, they're just sinking money into paying a player. And what if they don't win? Wait, wait do a minute. Game, wait a minute. Wait.
0: Wait. wait. These donations can be deducted as charitable deductions.
7: At least 60 of these collectives are either charities or affiliated with charities. So they get, you know, the IRS has said they're tax deductible. So you can pay a linebacker, basically, and get a tax deduction for that. The IRS has since come out and said, wait a second, maybe this isn't kosher. But before that, they allowed a lot of these people to get approved as charities and take tax deductible donations. Even with all those additional IRS agents, the IRS is allowing this? Yeah, and and you know some of these things are just ridiculous. Like the one I mentioned earlier. Yeah, at Michigan State, there's a charity that pays a player seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and nominally the charity work he does in return for that payment is to make one social media post a month. So you know they, they're they're being compensated. They're, they are doing charity work, but usually they're being compensated at a level far above the value of the work they're providing.
0: And the donors just get a. You can. Where on the tax form. Do you get the write-off for that? That's just one. Like that's like giving money to a, a poor person. It's the same kind of donation. You said,
7: it's the same kind of, It's the same as given to the you know United Way or the you know food bank or anything else. These are all because of the IRS. let them into the system. They're all five hundred one c three charities. So yeah, you can. What was you it? Know, like Ohio State. You can. What kind uh, of money are
0: these? What kind of money are these kids making?
7: Well, so we found, you know, I, th- I talked about the high end. We found that the average salary for a starter on, on the football team at a Power Five school, so that's 60 something schools, the average salary for a starter on those teams, from, just from these collectives,
0: is $103,000. $103,000. And you get a charitable deduction for giving money to a guy who's making 100 a year.
7: Yeah, it's a you know to play what you know the, where the the good this does for society is that maybe Washington or Washington State wins a the game they wouldn't have won it you know it's not but really it's hard to connect this to any sort of really you know public good oh. it's it's a business. Well, you're true. That's doctor. true.
0: Any, anything that helps uh, the Cougars win it should be a charitable deduction. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. I, I- choke points the bridge connecting Tacoma and Fife uh, carrying Pacific Highway over the Puyallup River 96 years old and it's uh, so bad it's being shut down our own James Lynch did a report on this. On Friday, the Federal Highway Administration recommended the immediate closure of the Fishing Wars Memorial Bridge, formerly known as the Puyallup River Bridge. Safety concerns on the aging bridge are to blame. Richard Robinson with Bucky's Automotive says that means nearby businesses will have to work harder to attract customers.
8: Just try to do more advertisement. I mean, that's the best you can do at that point. The bridge will be closed at
0: least until a full inspection can be finished. In Fife, James Lynch, Cairo News Radio. So Chris, how long is this going to take?
8: At least two or three years minimum. That's the word that I've gotten from uh, the city engineer via email. I wasn't available yesterday to talk to him, uh, of you know, for an interview, but I was able to send questions to him, and he got back to me. But that's the that's the number. And and here's what's happening is that this is an old steel truss bridge, and it is covered with so much dirt and debris that when inspectors went through in June, they couldn't actually see the vital parts of the bridge, especially underneath. And that's why they had to shut it down because they couldn't actually inspect. Them. Uh, there is great concern that those structural elements are in such bad shape that the bridge could collapse. Uh, I mean, it's been under a load restrictions t- since 2009 because of the danger. And so two or three years at a minimum is uh, what we're expecting. And that would just be to get the environmental permits To clean the bridge, only then would inspectors be able to actually see what the condition is. And it's expected that uh, six or seven million dollars is what it's going to take for the cleaning. For a little history on this bridge, it was shut down in 2018 as the south section of the bridge was replaced. But only three of the seven steel truss spans were replaced because that's all the money they had. So that leaves the majority of the bridge, you know, over a thousand feet of it that they they couldn't repair. And it's that section that. they are really concerned about, uh, and it's expected that it would cost about two hundred and eighty million dollars to finish that replacement. Wow. The city only has nine million dollars in federal money to begin the preliminary design work on that, so they're way down the field on trying to figure this thing out. So, in the interim, what they're trying to do is to try to expedite these environmental reviews so they can actually clean the bridge and then get an inspection to find out how bad it is, and then maybe then they could let traffic back on it while they plan a full replacement. Uh, but again, Again, they don't know because they can't see it. So, yeah, and it's odd that it's going to take two to three years to get the environmental uh, permitting done. But that's what the engineer is telling me.
0: On another matter, uh, we're getting more information about Joe Emerson, the uh, off-duty pilot who tried to uh, cut the engines to that plane. What do we know now?
8: Well, basically, as, as Colleen's been talking about in the newscast, 44-year-old guy, Pleasant Hill, California, just outside San Francisco. Uh, just a, a little bit background on him. He joined Horizon Air in 2001. Uh, then he left for Virgin America in 2012. Alaska then purchased Virgin in 2016. So he was kind of put back into the fold at Alaska as a first officer. And then he became a captain Captain in 2019, so he's been a pilot for a very long time. Uh, the airline also says that he's up to date on all of his FAA-mandated medical certifications, and at no time were his certifications denied, revoked, or suspended. As you know, pilots undergo not only just the physical training and retraining to make sure they are up to date on the systems, but also uh, they have found, you know, through years and years of crash investigations and understanding pilot behavior, they do a lot of work on the the psychological makeup of, of pilots to make sure that they're okay, they can handle uh, the cockpit uh, dynamics between certain styles of pilots so between each other so uh, no issues uh, there but we do have a little bit more information on exactly what happens uh, you know some people have been asking us on the text line because they've been hearing different reports oh he tried to shut off the engines he shut off the engines what you know how does this work and basically what they have in this is a small twin enge, a twin engine plane an Embraer 175 uh, made in Brazil and what they have is there are the fire suppression systems, if you were to get a fire in one of the engines, what you would do is you'd reach up over your head as a pilot. Uh, the pilot in the left seat would handle the left engine, uh, the co-pilot first officer, whatever, in the other seat. You would pull down on that lever to cut the fuel supply to the engine. Then you lock it in place by turning it, and then that releases – uh, fire retardant gas that would then shut off the engine. What happened in this case, It's uh, according to the is he was able to pull down the levers to restrict the fuel supply, but not turn and lock them. He was able; they, The pilot and co-pilot were able to wow. prevent that from happening. We put them back in, and there was enough fuel in the fuel lines before the fuel was cut that the engines were able to maintain uh, forward momentum while they were doing that. And once so, you
0: do that, the engines can't be restarted. That right? one I'm
8: going to check, because I don't know the Embraer's uh, engineering as much as you could, But you would think once you put the gas in there, uh, it would take time to relight. However, at 31,000 feet, there was enough recovery time where you could put nose down uh, situation, be able to get air into the engine to try mm-hmm. to restart. And they would have, you know, you're six miles above the earth. You had plenty of time to try to recover uh, based on what I know about uh, piloting and the engineering. But I can't say for certain. I don't know how once you put that gas in there, what it does to the system. But I know there have been flame outs and things before. Where uh, pilots have recovered being able to, you know, increase the airflow just doing it through gravity. So, wow. but yeah, pretty close and very scary uh, to a, a very different situation.
0: And it's time for personal hygiene tips with Nikki Gomez because <laughs> apparently people are unsure about when to shower.
4: Well, no. Dermatologists just tell us that you don't have to shower every day. And I found that to be very like, what? Because I'm a everyday shower. Are you? Uh, I, I do. I That's shower every single You're day. You're really
2: scrubbing your microbiome off. That's,
4: of I know. I know. I don't want it on me. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, So they tell us you do not have to shower every day unless you sweat a lot for whatever reason, whether you're working out or you're going through menopause like me or you have you almost spit your drink out. Oh, I hear you. That's a
0: separate feature. Yes, that is.
4: Or if you have oily hair or dandruff. Yeah, I hear the reverse is true. So Mm -hmm.
2: during the pandemic, you know how we were all taking up these hobbies like making sourdough bread Mm -hmm. and, you know, whatever, collecting houseplants. Another one I started really getting into was hair training. Yeah, because I also felt like, oh, I need to wash my hair every day because it gets greasy. It gets greasy because you keep washing the moisture away and your body's trying to make up for that also called sebum. And so if you go like two weeks without washing your hair and just using dry shampoo, it starts to reset the calibration of your scalp releasing that oil and now i can go like four days without washing my hair and it's not greasy
4: not me girlfriend okay. i have to wash my hair every single day my hair is so oily and i do mm. try the dry shampoos and i've tried several of the expensive ones and they don't work but um you can use a dry shampoo to keep it smelling fresh and wait a
0: less minute oily. we have to ask what? chris chris what is right. your hair care regimen well i shower every day but
8: don't you get stinky
2: no why not well, what do you mean? My hair gets my Yeah, I mean, my I don't know. My hair. Because you hair. can just wipe down your armpits if yeah. you're a like, uh, little tea tree I, uh, oil. That'll fix the bacteria oh my right gosh. there. I can gosh.
8: I got to shower every day. You don't I have dry too.
4: skin from showering every oh, day? Sure, I
8: probably do. I don't know. I don't yeah. check my skin. I don't know how to tell if it's dry or not.
4: Yeah. So they also <laughs> say something else that they say is that you shouldn't use soap on your private areas. Yeah, that's because true. it can irritate uh, irritate the area. It can impact your pH balance. What Chris is over there making up? That's oh. the first I've heard that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, is this separate for men and women? Because that's true for women. Oh, it is true for women, but that's what they just—it was a generalized statement. And huh. if you do, uh, if you do use soap, then you run the risk of organisms growing down oh, there. No. So this is why you're not supposed to shower every day, and you're not supposed so to use soap. They say that water... Water works just fine. Interesting. Now here's a mm-hmm. question that
2: is always controversial. Do you wash your feet, or do you just assume the soap from your hair and body running over Mm-mm. your feet washes wash your feet? I wash my
4: feet every do you? single you scrub day. Them? Yes, you I get do. Up in there? I what have about a- you, Dave? You scrub your feet? <laughs> what? <laughs> you think this is funny? This is
0: hilarious. This
2: is, it's some serious stuff. We need to talk about. I it. thought
0: I knew you people, and now I'm just finding out. Now of you a
4: whole... know of us even more.
2: I, Colin now, doesn't now shower. I know,
0: and... Now I know too much about no. you. People.
4: <laughs> No, I wash my feet. Though. I wash my hair every day. Is it good okay. enough to just let the soap run over your feet? I
0: think no, all depends on how much soap you have in the soap dish. If there's no soap in the soap dish, I guess, and all you got is the shampoo suds, then yeah,
4: yeah, it's good well, enough. Dermatol- dermatologists recommend that if you have eczema or drier, sensitive skin, and you do want to shower every day, keep your shower short. Don't use really hot water, That's and impossible. consider. I know. I know. I like it- to shower in lava. I, I, I always tell my wife when I get in the shower after her, are you trying to boil noodles? Why is this so hot? And then I turn it and then I make yeah. it cooler because that cold water just kind of like shocks my system. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh. mm. yeah. So you're a boiling noodle kind of a shower girl. OK, yeah, good to know. Make some baked ziti in there <laughs> anyway. Well,
0: thank you for the advice, Mickey. You're very Why
2: welcome. You're so shy about I'm body stuff. Come on. <laughs> Come on.
0: Because I'm old school, colleague. Yeah, ooh, we don't know. Is that what about. it is? All these things are none of my business.
4: Dave, do you shower every day? I need to know. Absolutely. I bet he does, okay, yeah. thank do you. Do you shower in sometimes, the morning or at sometimes night? Sometimes twice. Sometimes twice. How many times Depends. do you wash your hair? Oh,
0: I don't know. I just like to stand in warm water mm-hmm. from time to time. Okay. Basically. I don't really care what else goes on. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross.
2: And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here.
0: And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.